Well, welcome back. It is great to see you guys. It is great to have you guys back. Hope you all had a great Christmas break. If you are visiting for the first time, let me just welcome you to Southwood here. Uh, we are ecstatic that you're with us. Uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and uh, we're just excited that you're with us, excited that you're back, and excited for a new semester and all that the Lord has this spring for you guys and for us. And so we're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you guys want to turn there this morning, the book of Philippians, we're going to be chapter one this morning, and we'll be there this whole semester actually as well. As you guys turn there, uh, I'll tell you guys I had a chance, as a lot of y'all did over Christmas break, to see some movies. I love just to waste my break away in the movie theater. I don't know about you guys. Um, I had a chance to see Mission Impossible 4. Um, originally, I wasn't going to see it being the fourth in a line of movies. Usually, they kind of get worse uh, as they go. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the gold standard of all evaluation, told me I should see it, and so I went um, and loved it. It is, I think, the quintessential guy movie, all right? Uh, there were a few life lessons learned. Uh, there was little plot. Uh, characters were not developed, and I didn't cry one tear. I mean, it's all that you want as a guy in a movie, right? And also, of course, with a lot of explosions, a lot of fast cars, a lot of unrealistic stunts. Again, everything that you would want as a guy in a movie. I loved it. Um, but there was a scene at the very end of the movie that most of us wouldn't have caught. Um, it was a scene that right at the very end when the team had, in a sense, saved the world. And they were gathering around at a little table outside at a pub as they were drinking drinks. And uh, basically, uh, Ethan Hunt, the leader of the team, was just thanking them for their contributions, thanking them for their own involvement in helping to save the world and giving them another mission of what was to come. It really is in that quiet, picturesque, warm moment in that movie that I think you actually get a great picture for what the book of Philippians is going to be all about this semester. As we open the book of Philippians, what we're going to see, even as the book opens this, or this morning, is in a sense a, a team that is assembled. And that team has assembled itself around and in pursuit of a mission just like we saw in the movie. And yet for this team in this book, we're going to find that they're pursuing a mission that's going to have a very different end than what we found in the book or in the movie. Uh, particularly in the movie, they, they are pursuing a mission that whose end is indefinite and whose end is uncertain. But for this team pursuing this mission in the book of Philippians, we're going to find a team that's pursuing a mission that has an ultimate and definite ending. And the ending is un, not uncertain. It is not unsure what is going to happen in this mission that this team is pursuing. And so really, as we look at the book of Philippians this morning and this semester, we're going to find a book that is incredibly warm and incredibly personal. Uh, many times, as Paul writes, he, he writes to churches that basically his message to them is knock it off and grow up, right? Uh, his message is often harsh. It is often corrective. But for the book of Philippians this semester, it is actually, I think, one of the warmest books and one of the gentlest books. It is a note, really, basically of thanksgiving. Thank you for contributing to the mission and that the Lord has called me and us to collectively. Thank you for being a part of that. And that's basically the, the, the tenor of the letter. Again, to a team that is close-knit, to a team that's pursuing a mission for an ending that will be uh, quite certain. That really is what the book of Philippians is all about. So even as we open this morning in Philippians chapter 1, walk with me, if you will, Philippians 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Really, as the book of Philippians opens, really, verses 1 and 2 provide us quite a bit of the who of the book. Uh, we really get a picture of really uh, what is basically a close-knit team. 
Uh, as it begins and it opens up, obviously we get a sense of the author and his assistant. The Apostle Paul is writing the book of Philippians and he's writing alongside and along with uh, an assistant, if you will, Timothy. Timothy was his disciple in the faith. It was his child in the faith, a person he saw rise to come to knowledge of Jesus Christ and to grow in his faith and a guy that actually Paul would eventually hand over his ministry and hand over the churches and leadership to in the future. Timothy was his guy. Uh, we know that Philippians is written most likely while Paul was in prison, possibly in Rome. And so it's likely that he's writing with an assistant because uh, Timothy very well may have been actually pinning this letter as Paul dictated or as Paul spoke it out. And so Timothy, alongside with Paul, is uh, there together as this letter is written to an audience known as those in Philippi, those in Christ Jesus. For Paul, uh, he had founded this church. He had visited Philippi and he had seen uh, a lady named Lydia and her family come to faith. He had seen a jailer and, and his household come to faith. And he saw a little group of believers begin to circle around Jesus Christ in devotion. He saw that church begin to grow and expand. And he really was there to encourage them, to thank them. as a church that he counted very dear in the mission that he had. This audience of this church was very much, in a sense, partners with him. He loved them dearly. We're going to walk and we're going to see as he writes this book, he's going to speak to them and write to them in a way that he doesn't speak to a lot of churches. He held them in a unique favor and a unique affection towards them. We find also, as we look at these people, uh, what, in a sense, what brought all these people together? In a sense, even as Tyler led us, what brings us all together? That these people like us had an association and a linkage, not with, particularly with a person, Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Philippi, who are all in Christ Jesus. They had circled themselves around that Jesus Christ, their common commitment to Christ was what, in a sense, linked these people arm in arm. It's what gave them, in a sense, a commonality, despite the differences that was true about all of them, that it was Jesus Christ that held them together. It was Jesus Christ that was the linkage, the association that brought this team together. And what's really fascinating as you look at this team was there was a reality of authority, but the exercise of authority in this team was quite different than any team you and I typically see. Like as we look at this team and we look at their sense of authority, authority was exercised so differently in this team. Notice, remember, how does Paul identify himself? Paul and Timothy, remember the leader, the, the founder of this church, the one who planted it. And he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And, and he writes to those who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Even in writing to and addressing the leadership of the church, even as a leader himself, he's highlighting the reality and the necessity for humility and service. Authority functions so differently in this community than anything you and I typically ever see. Ultimately, the call to leadership within this community was ultimately a call to humility. That ultimately for Paul, for Timothy, and for the overseers and the deacons, their role as leaders in this community was an ultimate call to humility and to service, to lay their lives down. And as we walk through the book of Philippians, we're going to see this theme over and over again. The call for you and I to lay our lives down, not just for the leadership of a church, but even for all those that are in it. And ultimately, the spot of a leader is ultimately a, a, as those of a chief servant. That's what Paul will see himself as, the, the, the chief servant of the church, the doulos, the bond servant of Christ Jesus. Ultimately, I think you and I have a very vague and, and at times distorted view of leadership. One of my favorite TV shows is Seinfeld. Uh, one of my favorite characters in that show is George Costanza. And there's an episode in that show uh, in which there's a point in which George is dating a girl and he's at a birthday party for a, a little kid that's part of the, uh, the group. And all of a sudden a little fire breaks out in the kitchen. And what does George do as the leader, as the one who's responsible in that group? He 
blazes out of the kitchen, running out to be the first one to escape from the fire in front of the party. And on his way out, he knocks over kids. He knocks over a grandmother who has a walker because he just wants to get out. All right. And eventually when everyone is safely escorted out of that fire and out of that party, eventually the firemen and and the older people that are at the party begin to question him going, Hey, how can you even look at yourself in the mirror? You should have been looking out for everyone else's interest. Instead, you were the first one to get out. And all George can say is that if the leader were to die, then all hope is lost, right? (laughs) He's just trying to cover his tracks because for George, what leadership was all about was self-preservation. Leadership for George was all about self-preservation. And I think for a lot of us at times, when we think about leadership, it's all about (laughs) self-promotion. You and I, I think, have quite a distorted view as to what leadership is all about. Authority is not a way to escape the call and the necessity and the requirement of humility. It's going to be the call of not just those in authority in the book of Philippians, but for the call of all of those who know Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ will be the ultimate model of that call to humility as we see him lay his own life down, as Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, in one of the most powerful sections on a call to humility that we'll find. Chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, that's where we'll be later on. But ultimately in this community, those that were in authority had the ultimate call of humility. They were the chief servants of the group. And it was a community that looked so different than any other organization, any other business, and sometimes any other family that you and I run into because this community functioned differently in light of two primary assets that it had. Paul will say to them the two things that he wishes for them or maybe the two things he wants to remind them that they already have. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ of all the things that he could bless upon them, of all the things that he could remind them that they have, why does he say these two things? Is it customary because this is what he always says in his letters? I don't think so. I think it's customary because it is so essential to what it means to know Jesus Christ and to walk with Jesus Christ. It's all about grace and peace. Those are two loaded words. What do those words mean? What was Paul saying upon them? He's saying this, that they had grace, grace, which is the reception of blessing based on unmerited favor. It is receiving something for not working for it at all. There's the reception of something that you did not earn or merit. And the two assets we have in a relationship with God himself is primarily grace. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from grace because you cannot relate to him on the basis of what you do. One of the critical things that you have to understand as you walk with God and as you relate to God and as you approach God is that you cannot approach on the basis of what you have done. Christianity says that essentially the reason you can approach God is on the basis of what someone else has done for you. Particularly, we sang this morning that Jesus Christ has trampled death by death, that he, in his death on a cross, has given us the freedom and the confidence that we will spend all of eternity with him. That his death trampled over death and his resurrection showed that he has the power over death to grant you and I not just forgiveness of sins, not just a wiping away of our debt against him, but even eternal life. In fact, the second part of what Paul will wish upon them is peace. It is not just the absence of conflict. It is not just that, hey, you and I are okay. We have peace. We have harmony. But ultimately what peace is, is the full experience of all the blessings of God. And what Paul is trying to remind the church in Philippi and what he's going to remind you and I of this morning is that ultimately for those of us who know Jesus Christ, you have received all the fullness of blessings absolutely freely. All that God could grant you and all that God could want for you, he has given you and granted you, not on the basis of what you could ever do or ever promise, but on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Christ took your penalty on the basis of his death on a cross so that you would not have to die in that spot. He died for you. He bled for you so that you and I could be reconciled to God who is our judge and he could look upon us and declare us righteous. Not on the basis of our good works, not on the basis of our good efforts, but on the basis of what Jesus has done himself for us. 
God grants us everything and we had to pay nothing for it. But ultimately, unless we receive that free gift of eternal life, we have no shot at grace. We have no shot at peace. God is the only source of grace and peace. He's the only one that can provide blessing and he's the only one that operates by grace. God operates so differently than you and I ever do. And I think when you and I totally and completely understand what grace is and we've truly understood and received grace, it has a profound impact on our lives. When you realize that the blessings that you receive are because of the goodness and the grace of God upon you on the basis of what he's done, not on the basis of what you could ever do, it completely changes and reorients your life. A great picture of that came for me this week, our little girl. Caroline, a lot of y'all know we have a two-year-old. Um, she, uh, especially with the bounty that she received at Christmas, now has literally eight dolls, okay? It is a unique life having a daughter, all right? She has eight dolls at two years old, all right? And, and I will admit to you that her favorite doll, she is named Gaga for whatever reason. I don't know, okay? Um, <laughs> it is like her pride and joy, Gaga, all right? And I, I can assure you, I can promise you, there's no Lady Gaga in our house. I have no idea why she's named her baby Gaga. It's always a little bit embarrassing when we're out in public. But nonetheless, uh, she has Gaga, she has Lala, she has Molly Kate. She has eight dolls, all right? Uh, and they are her dolls, all right? She sleeps with them, she holds them, she loves them dearly with all that she has. All right. And the problem comes when friends come over. All right. So just this week, she had a couple of friends come over and they wanted to play with her dolls. And the word mine came out about as million, million times as you can imagine. All right. And there was shoving and there was pushing, there was screaming. It did not go well. All right. Um, and so lesson number one for us in 2012 with our daughter is sharing. All right. We're going to share. We're going to give. We're going to extend what we have and, and, and hand it over to people. Right. And so eventually these friends left and Marcy, uh, being the amazing mom that she is seeing a good training moment, sat down with Caroline and said, Hey, let me ask you, who gave you Gaga? And she goes and thinks back to who gave it to her. And then Marcy begins to walk her through all eight of her dolls asking who gave those to her. And then that moment clicks for her when she realizes everything that she has was just given to her, right? And she's not bought anything. She's not earned anything. Everything that she has has been given to her. And so later that same morning, another friend is coming over and Marcy's kind of prepped her saying, hey, we're going to share. We're going to work on this. And so that friend comes over and by gosh, darn it, you know what Caroline does? That friend comes and knocks at the door. Caroline beats her to the door. And when the door is open, she takes her eight dolls and she just throws them to her friend. All right. Just lays them all right out. Like they're yours. Just enjoy. Right. You know, she got it though. Right. She got it. She got a sense of what grace does when you and I realize what it means and then how we live in light of it, right? She understood. Everything that she had, she got freely. She didn't earn or merit anything. And somehow as you and I grow up and mature and think that we begin to merit and earn things, you and I miss and have a real difficulty understanding what grace is. It is the reception of all that God would want for you on the basis of not what you have done and merited, but on the basis of what he has given you freely. And in light of that, what we're going to notice about this team, this church in Philippi, is that they're going to receive grace that's going to be given to them absolutely freely. But it's going to enable them to live their lives and giving everything away. Ultimately, the grace that they received, everything on the basis of nothing, will, will cause them and challenge them to live their lives and giving everything away. Ultimately, what we're going to see is this close-knit team is going to commit themselves to a costly global mission. Not just a mission that Paul had, but a mission that they will step into. And notice what Paul says of them in verse five. It's great. He says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Before that, he talks about, hey, I pray for you. I love you. I have a huge affection for you. And here's why. Because you have been participating with me from the first day I showed up with you, even until now in the gospel. Ultimately, the NIV, if you have the NIV translation, I even like what it says even better. It says, in the partnership of the gospel. 
Ultimately, they saw the gospel as not something that was Paul's responsibility. It wasn't the responsibility of the elite or the experts or those that were commissioned to do it for their job, all right? Ultimately, the church in Philippi gathered around and they partnered with Paul in this gospel. They wanted to see the gospel spread and eventually go to all the nations. And they realized that what Paul was called to proclaim was not just his job, but it was the job of the entire church, the job of those in Philippi. And they gladly jumped in. Um, In fact, he'll say of them in Philippians chapter four, he says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know no other church shared with me in the matter of giving for you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He had a fond affection for them because they were so in the bunker with him in this task. They were so associated with him and what he was called to do. They labored alongside of him. They suffered with him and they gladly gave away their possession, even their finances for the task that was not just Paul's, but even the church's as well. Ultimately, Jesus will say it this way, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We refer to this as the great commission. Not just that which Jesus gave the apostles and those first disciples, but what he extends to the church at large. This is our task as the church of Jesus Christ. It is not about building our name. It is not about making our personalities and our name known. It is about the establishment of his kingdom and the proclamation of his gospel. This is what we're all about. This is what we're about as a church. This is what we're about as a body. This is what Paul was calling the church in Philippi to. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ's death, resurrection to all of the nations. To go and to make disciples. As you guys reconvene here for a spring semester and as you guys get syllabuses or syllabi here in the next few days, sorry to bring that up. Um, uh, I want to remind you though, the midst of the mission that you'll be handed to by your professors, this is your ultimate mission. It doesn't matter your vocation. It doesn't matter your major. It doesn't matter the dorm or the apartment complex you live in. It doesn't matter the organizations or the offices that you're going to hold this spring or hope to hold. This is your primary calling. That wherever you go, wherever job you take, whatever classroom you step into, this is your job this spring. That in the midst of all those activities that you pursue, you pursue it with the objective of making disciples. Not just in the nations, but right here in whatever organization, classroom, and room you step into. This is the call that you and I have together. This is what we are all about. In fact, what's really fascinating to me as you think about this community is, is if they had such a costly mission, why were they so close-knit? It often it feels to me in community that if community has to pay a price and sacrifice, often it can cause the community to splinter apart. I think what's really ironic, and I think what the book of Philippians is going to teach us from the very beginning this semester is this, that when you and I as a church are all about meeting our own needs, the depth of relationships we're going to have is going to be quite shallow. If what we're about as we gather is just about the encouragement and the meeting of one another's needs, and we don't see the world that's around us, the depth of our relationships is going to be pretty superficial. In fact, I would submit to you guys that the Philippian church, as they sacrificed, as they suffered with one another, and as they had a common goal that they were pursuing in terms of the gospel, they experienced a depth of fellowship, a depth of relationship that was anything greater than they could have experienced if they were just looking out for one another. It was actually in their looking outside these walls, outside of their own community to the world, that they found a depth of relationship with one another that was so significant. In fact, I think this is what sports is all about too, right? Teams gather at the beginning of every year in sports and they gather and, and they begin to go through training. They begin to suffer physically. They train, they, they push their bodies. They commit the, the ultimate sacrifice for one another, all for a common goal, right? 
They want to win a game and then ultimately they want to win a championship. And yet even in sports, in the midst of all that sacrifice, in the midst of all that challenging and suffering and and coming together for a common goal, only one team wins the prize every year, right? And, And yet even in that, there's a camaraderie that comes even as they don't accomplish their goals just because they had a common goal and they had suffered with and alongside of one another. They were a team. In fact, for those that accomplish their goals and for those that win the championship, they have an even deeper camaraderie and an even deeper fellowship, I'd argue. Think about the Alabama uh, college football team that just won the championship Monday night. They're going to have a memory and they're going to have an experience they're going to share with the rest of their lives. The rest of their lives are going to go back and talk about this past year, that game, those experiences, those moments, those moments that defined their community and defined their relationships as they gathered together, as they sacrificed for a common goal that they saw achieved. That's what sports is all about. In fact, in sports, though, only one team accomplishes that goal and very few actually accomplish that which they're pressing towards. Anyway, what I think is really fascinating as you think about the book of Philippians as we open is that the goal that the church in Philippi is pressing toward is a goal that has a certain ending. Whether it's a war, whether it's sports, very few, and no one can actually claim that the ending that's in sight is actually certain. You know, what we're going to see is if a college football team can have a memory that will, they will share the rest of their life, then how much more for the church of God that commits himself to a kingdom that will be established certainly. What you and I are committing ourselves to in the gospel mission that we're being called to and being invited into is not one that is uncertain or shakable. In fact, notice what he says in verse six. Notice what he says of the church. He says this, for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That which you and I are committing ourselves to is certain. Jesus Christ will return one day and what will be established will be a certain kingdom. In fact, the apostle John will say it like this in Revelation chapter five. He says this, here's what uh, Jesus spoke of. And here is what the apostle John will say. Look, here's what it's going to look like in the end. He says this, Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue and people and nation. Ultimately, Jesus will call us to make disciples of all nations. John will say in the end, here's the climax of human history when all the nations are gathered around the throne in devotion and worship to the king of kings. This is where human history is headed and it is not uncertain at all. We sang this morning, uh, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? And the reality of life right now, death sting is everywhere, right? You and I feel death every time. Family holidays are times where we are reminded of deaths that have occurred, of family loved ones that we've lost. You and I live in a time in which the sting of death is very felt. Hell at times seems to be winning. Sin seems to be winning. What you and I experience, what you and I feel in a world that is broken is nothing like what we are ultimately hoping for, right? a day in which death will be removed, a day in which the kingdom of God will be established because at right now, at this point in time, it doesn't seem like those are certain realities at all. Which is why you and I need the reminder that despite what you and I see, faith is walking on the basis of not sight, but belief. On the basis of a promise that has been extended to us in which we are quite certain of where human history is moving. You guys, as the spring semester begins, have all kinds of hopes and dreams for this semester. Some of it may not happen at all, right? This may be the semester you hope for a girlfriend. Sorry, you know, some things may not happen, right? This may be the semester you wanted the 4.0. Mm, you know, this may not come through, you know? Um, there's all these things that you and I hope for as we begin a new semester and have a new year and all kinds of resolutions and things we want. And there's only one certain resolution. There's only one certain reality that is approaching and that is coming. And that's the, the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. And the establishment of a kingdom that will include all nations that will be surrounded his throne in worship. 
And as you and I commit ourselves to that task, as you and I commit ourselves to that mission, we are committing and we are sacrificing for something that is absolutely certain. That is still costly. But that which is we receive freely is that which enables us to accomplish something that costs us everything. Grace brings us into a relationship with God that gives us all that we could ever hope for absolutely freely. But then it allows us to extend all that we have and all that we are for something that will be absolutely certain. Ultimately, what God provides us is all that we could ever need to accomplish all that he has ever called us to. Ultimately, as we think about this task, and as we think about the mission, we think about a new semester, I want to challenge us two main things. As you look at your semester, I want to challenge you to two main ideas, two simple ideas. I want to challenge you to be a disciple. If you and I have been called to make disciples, then the reality is you and I cannot make what we are not. <laughs> you and I cannot make disciples if we are not a disciple. You know, if, if I came to someone and said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make athletes but their diet was atrocious. They had it run a mile in four years and they had no self-control. I don't think they're going to do a good job at making athletes, right? Uh, or if you were to ask me, hey, here's what I want you to do, Trey. I want you to make musicians. <laughs> Tyler's laughing because he knows I can't carry tune. I have no rhythm. I know nothing about music. And so I often weekly will joke around with these guys about how little I know about what they do. All right. I, I know nothing about music. I can't make musicians. All right. Uh, there's, that's not a part of my job description. All right. And the reality is you and I can't make disciples if we are not that already and we know something about it, right? You and I have been called as a church and as a body of believers to make disciples and you and I cannot make what we are not. So the first goal I have for you guys this semester is to simply be a disciple. Be a learner and a follower of Jesus Christ this semester. For some of you guys, you may not know Jesus Christ and you may be kind of on the periphery wondering, hey, who is this Jesus fellow? What is this church all about? Uh, what is the gospel? I hear about this good news and, and I'm still wrestling through it. I still have questions and let me challenge you be a learner. Uh, continue to wrestle, continue to pursue, continue to ask questions. Come talk to me afterwards. Uh, I want to challenge you to continue to wrestle with truth. Uh, what is true of you? What is true of God? Who is Jesus Christ and why is he significant at all? If you know Jesus Christ this semester and you already know him, let me challenge you this semester to push forward, uh, to make it your priority, to make it your goal, to know him more deeply and to walk with him more closely. Your goal, no matter how long you've known Jesus Christ, is to continue to grow and to continue to learn him more deeply and to follow him more closely. That has been my goal as I've looked at 2012. I need to continue to grow. I need to continue to know more and to press forward and to grow and to be stretched in new ways. And so as I've looked at this year, I've been asking the Lord, hey, how do I need to grow this year? (laughs) I don't need to look at my strengths more. I need to look at some weaknesses. I need to look at some holes in my life and I need to know you more closely. I don't want to be content with what I know already. I don't want to be content with where I am. I want to press more and know him more closely and to drink more deeply from him. And and so how do we do that? Uh, A great way to do that is through some of our small groups. A great way is to get in the word, to surround yourself with the people of God and to know the community of God and to know the person of God more closely. If you're a freshman, we announced this already, but I want to remind you again, uh, Dulas is one of the best spots to do that. All right. Uh, Dulas is our freshman Bible study. We meet every Wednesday night on campus, 630 to 830. It's a great spot to meet some fellow freshmen, but it's a great spot to wrestle with who God is and who you are and, and learning to walk with the Lord. Great spot to do that. If you're an upperclassman, again, just a reminder, uh, we have three different studies for you guys, essentials, Colossians, and even history. History being our, our kind of our main study this spring. History, we're going to walk you from Genesis to Revelation and give you, in a sense, the storyline of the scriptures. If you've ever opened your Bible and thought, I am lost, 
I have no idea where I am and who is Jeremiah? <laughs> what? You know, if that's you, uh, let me tell you, I think this study was probably one of the most transformational studies for me in college. It was just great to give me a sense of not the Bible is a vast ocean that I feel lost in, but giving me some landmarks, giving me a grid and an ability to get a sense of how do I get my hands and my arms around the Bible? Huge study to give you a sense of, in a sense, what is God's plan and purposes for all of eternity? What is God doing? What began in the garden in Genesis 1? And how does that wrap up and conclude in the book of Revelation? Uh, One of my most favorite studies we do, I'd love for you to consider being a part of it. Great way to grow in being a disciple this semester. Another way, another thing I'd love to challenge you guys to, you'll hear me mention this a few times. I mentioned it at the very end of the fall semester, and I felt like you guys were going to mutiny and riot on me. So I'll try it again. Uh, But if you're up for a challenge, I want to invite you guys to join Marcy and I. We're going to memorize the book of Philippians this spring. All right. Philippians is not for Samuel. All right. It's just a little book. All right. Uh, It's easy. uh, Concepts are easy to grab, easy to memorize. And so I want to challenge you to come join us, be a part of that. A great way to meditate on the word of God, a great spot and way to put the word of God deeply in your heart and let it bring some transformation. And if that's not enough, if you can do it, Marcy and I will cook you dinner. All right. So uh, that's the goal. That's one of the challenges we want to throw to you guys this uh, spring. Um, And then lastly, also the reason we are disciples is that we can make disciples. All right. The task that you and I have been given, no matter our vocation, major uh, hometown and wherever we head off after college is that you and I are called to make disciples. If you are a disciple, then you are instantly ready and on the track to begin to make disciples. And notice Jesus will say in all the nations, John will notice that it was all the families, all the tribes, tongues, people that were gathering around the throne. And so this call includes not just A&M, but it includes even the nations at large. It means that wherever you step this spring in any classroom, any organization, you step in there as a missionary, as a representative of Jesus Christ and as a spokesperson for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are ambassadors for that good news. You and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, no matter where we step. And in that process, you and I are being called to make disciples, reminding people what Jesus has said and what Jesus has called us to. That is your task. And that is what we as a church want to be about is coming alongside you, equipping you for that task, helping you grow so that you become a disciple maker. That is our goal as a church. That is our goal for you guys this spring semester. That's why we want to get you guys in small groups. But that's also why we don't want you just in the church. We don't want you just with the people of God all the time. We want you guys in the world. We want you guys to have eyes for the world and for your campus, for your classrooms. We want you guys to have eyes that are open to whomever God might bring along your path that you could be a spokesperson and an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And that's true not just here on A&M, but it's also true even in the nations. And so I want to remind you guys, even as the semester begins now, something you guys are going to hear us talk about even as the spring goes, but I want to put it in front of you right now. Every summer, five to six week trips, we send out uh, student teams to East Asia, to Greece and to a part of the world that are are Islamic. And and we want to challenge you and and invite you to be a part of those teams as they go and share the gospel throughout the nations. Uh, Huge opportunity, great way to be a disciple and become a disciple maker. Great way for you to learn to share your faith. And I will tell you what the Lord will do five weeks on a summer trip like that is absolutely transformational. Applications are already up online. Applications will be due February 10th, but I want to put that in front of you and challenge you even now to begin to pray about it. Uh, Might the Lord call you and move you to spend the first summer term, the summer overseas, having a chance to serve him in a spot of the world that you've never been to with people you've never met and that could blow you away huge opportunity you want to kind of get in front of you and extend to you. And that's my goal for you guys this semester, uh, to be a disciple and to make disciples. 
You cannot make what you are not. And so the process begins as you learn and as you grow and as you pursue Jesus Christ. And then as he moves you and as he places you in spots to represent him and to make an impact for his kingdom and for his gospel. Let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks that you've called us to a task that is so far beyond us. And yet you've called us into a relationship that was a reminder of the fact that there's nothing we did to get into this thing. And I thank you that as you extend to us eternal life and forgiveness of sins and and an opportunity to walk with you, I thank you for the reminder that it is all on the basis of what you've done for us. That Jesus died in our spot so that he took the penalty that was ours, that we could walk with you and that we could find peace, reconciliation, and the fullness of experience of the blessings of God absolutely on the conditions of what you've done for us. Father, I thank you that we can know you, that we can walk with you by grace. And Father, I pray that as we step into a semester and as we're reminded of a, of a call that pushes us and challenges us, I thank you that you enable us and you equip us to do that which you've called us to. I thank you that you are not just one who reconciles, but you are one who restores and who equips us to do and to carry out that which you've called us to. Father, I pray that we could be your ambassadors, that we could know you more deeply this semester, and that you would draw us more closely to you. I pray that you would allow us to be bold ambassadors for you as we step into classrooms on Tuesday, as we step into dorm rooms or uh, sorority houses uh, this week. Uh, No matter where we step, Lord, I pray that we would have eyes open and be available to you, whatever you would have this semester, Lord. Might you call us to things beyond our imagination and might you move us to things and to places that we could never have dreamed this spring, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, it's great to have y'all back. Y'all have a great week, great first week. We'll be praying for you guys.